passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Uh, we're going to jump into 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up uh, to that. This passage gets it at the heart of one of the greatest problems that faces humanity, um, not just here in, um, in Spencer, um, not just here in the 21st century, but really throughout human history. This is one of the greatest problems, greatest temptations that is facing humanity, and that is to not meet God on his own terms, but instead to, to remake God in our own image. So um, a generation ago, there was this uh, Christian author who, who, who said this, and, and I, I've I've latched on to this quote because I think it is, it is so profound, it's so important. He said something like, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And what he meant by that is that it doesn't matter if you say that you believe in God if the God that you actually believe in has nothing to do with the picture of God in the Scriptures. And so you talk to a dozen different people and if they don't have a view of God that is shaped and transformed by God in the Bible, you'll get a dozen different answers of what God is actually like. And so for some, God is like this magical Santa Claus that sits in heaven. And he keeps his list and he's, he's checking it twice to see who's naughty, see who's nice, and, and, and he's going to bless those who are good and those who are naughty. He's, he's going to pour out judgment upon them. And of course, the definition of what does it mean to be good or, or bad is always right below where I am, right? So I'm always going to make the cuts. For others, they, they look at God like he's a genie in a lamp. He's there to, to grant wishes to us and then we can put him back in the lamp when we don't need him. For others, God is his cosmic referee. He's always keeping score, always got his giant scorecard that he is making sure that we are following the rules. Others, God is like a landlord. He's not present, and yet when something goes wrong, we can just get him on the phone, and we can expect him to fix our problems. This isn't a problem for people outside the church and not for those inside the church. This is a, a, a huge problem for us inside the church as well. Psalm 14 is describing something called practical atheism or functional atheism. It, it says that those who, who are, are claiming to follow God and yet practically their lives don't, don't line up with, with the scriptures, they don't line up with what God has commanded, they're, they're actually living lives that, that show that they don't actually believe that God exists. So Psalm 14 starts this way, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Notice that the fool doesn't say out loud, there is no God. The fool is saying that in their heart. They're keeping that to themselves. They're saying that, you know what, I might have the right words, but in their hearts and through their actions, they're living a life that says, you know what, I don't actually believe that God exists. I don't think it's worth keeping his commandments. It's not worth living in fellowship and in communion with him. And they may, may look or say the right words on the outside, but according to the Bible, they are fools. And that's what this morning's passage is about. To use the language of Psalm 14, it's about a bunch of fools. First Samuel 
introduces us here in, in chapter 4 to the people of Israel. And they, they might act spiritual. They, they go through these motions that, that look really impressive on the outside. And yet the way that they are treating God in 1 Samuel chapter 4 shows the, that they don't think that God is a divine king, but instead they think that God is a lucky charm. And you bring God out to, to get through the problems that are facing you. And, and when life is tough, and then you can go ahead and put him back when you are done with him. And in all honesty, this has been the norm of the people of Israel for centuries now. If we're looking at the book of Judges, God has been a part of their lives, but yet God doesn't have the place of supremacy in their lives. God, they, they, they call on God when they need him, and yet soon after, God is forgotten. And so as we approach this, this text, we, we're asking the question, well, well, how's God going to respond when people persistently treat him in this way. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Eli's sons in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We saw that God is is deeply concerned with his glory. Remember, how we live our lives makes a statement about the glory of God, what you think about God, what you actually think God is like. God doesn't really care if you say you believe in God if the God that you believe in has nothing to do with the true God of the Bible. And we're going to see that that's not just true of the sons of Eli, it's also true of the entire nation of Israel at this moment. They have this twisted view of God. And so we ask ourselves, what is going to happen? 1 Samuel 4 tells us the answer. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 4. Our text is really about two different battles in verses 1 through 11. And so we're going to look at these two battles in turn as well. Would you follow along with me as I read aloud, starting in verse 1? Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it might come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel died, and the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word and it is such a gift to have a God who speaks. Even as we saw last week in 1 Samuel 3, what a good gift it is to have a God who speaks to his people. And this morning, God, we ask that you would do just that, that as we open up your word, that you would speak to us, that you would use this text to accomplish your purposes in our lives. God, for those of us who need to be comforted, we ask that you would comfort us with the grace of the gospel. For those of us who need to be stirred to a deeper faith, we ask that you would increase our faith. And, and for those of us who, who need to repent, we ask for the grace to respond to the gospel call with obedience. God, we thank you that you know exactly what we need and that through your spirit you are sufficient to bring these things about. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's look at the first battle of Aphek. And to this point, as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, we've, we've seen how God is preparing a future leader of the people of Israel to focus on Samuel. And, and Samuel's role is to bring the people of God back to himself. And, and when we get to chapter 4, we actually zoom out and we look at the state of the people of Israel as a whole. We're not just looking at the brokenness of the ruling family of, of Eli and his sons, but the brokenness of the entire nation of Israel. Chapter 4 opens with this battle that's about to take place between Israel and a nation that has quickly become their mortal enemies, and that's the Philistines. Let's go ahead and throw this map up here. This will show us a little bit of what the Philistines were like. Surprisingly, the Philistines were not Canaanites originally. The Philistines, if you see this blue line coming through the Mediterranean Sea, this is a, the migration pattern of the people of, uh, that eventually become the Philistines. And I know that this is exactly what you expected to look at on a Sunday morning as you gathered in church. Migration patterns from 1200 BC, right? This is important, I think, because it shows us that the, the, the nation of, of Philistia, is there, they're there, they're a thorn in the flesh of, of, of the people of Israel, and yet they're not Canaanites. They have a lot more in common with the people of Israel. Like the Israelites, they've just recently moved into the land of Canaan. And actually, this takes place about 100 years or so before our passage. So in about 1200 BC, that's when the people of Philistia start to come into the land and begin to make settlements in the pink land is, is the promised land to the people of Israel. And they begin to settle in the southern parts of that Land. And already you can see that conflict that's, that's starting to come between the people of Israel and the people who will become their mortal enemies, the Philistines. At roughly the exact same time as they are entering the land from the east, we have this other warring nation that's coming in from the west. And this is the land that's been promised to the people of Israel from God and the very presence of the Philistines in the land of Canaan creates this tension. Is God going to keep his promises? We have God keeping his promises with the people of Israel as they're entering into the land across the Jordan. And yet we also have this nation of Philistines who has begun to settle as well. By the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, let's go ahead and throw this next map up. 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines controlled the coast 
of the Mediterranean uh, in the land of Canaan. And, and this is kind of hard to see from the colors, but you can see here uh, there's a little bit of gray, and that gray shows like the heartlands of the Philistine territory. And then there's a little bit of yellow, and you can see the yellow right here that shows where they've begun to expand their territory. Up at the very top is Aphek and Ebenezer. And so they've begun to extend their territory. They've begun to expand into the region that has been promised to the people of Israel. Now this place, Aphek, is taken over by the Philistines before our text. It's about 20 miles north of the heartland of the Philistine territory. And Aphek is an important city. It's an important city for a number of reasons. One is because it is located on the most important highway in the land of Canaan. This highway that goes all the way from Egypt and then curves around into Europe, Aphek is located on it. So anyone who is, has a, a, a say in global politics in that day, but also, and probably more significant for our text this morning, Aphek is located in this narrow pass between the, the plains of Canaan along the Mediterranean, and into the hill country where the majority of the people of Israel live. It is the perfect staging area for a full-scale invasion of the land of Canaan from the Philistines. In fact, Aphek is located just about 20 miles west of Shiloh. Shiloh is the de facto capital of Israel at this time. It's the perfect staging area, and the Philistines are threatening the people of Israel in this moment. The fact that they hold Aphek shows how grave the situation is in Israel. If the Israelites don't push the Philistines back, then they are left completely open to being conquered by the Philistines. And that's the scene when we open up in chapter 4. Now, the Israelites still control the city located about two miles east of Aphek, named Ebenezer. Who's going to take control of the promised land? Is it going to be the Philistines, this pagan nation, or is it going to be God's people, the Israelites? Let's look again at verses 1 and 2. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Somewhere between Aphek and Ebenezer, the Israelites and the Philistines, they, they join in battle, and Israel is defeated. Now, while it's true that the Philistines are almost certainly militarily superior to the people of Israel in this day, Every single time in the Old Testament that we see the Israelites defeated, their armies are defeated, it is because of sin. Every single time in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel goes into battle against another nation and they are defeated, it is because they have persisted in sin. And so when we open 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we see that the, the Israelites are de defeated before the Philistines, we should reach this conclusion. How do the Israelites respond? 
And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Well, the Israelites, they ask the right question, don't they? They acknowledge that that they haven't been defeated by the Philistines. They've actually been defeated by God himself. So they have this this right theological framework. They understand that God is sovereign and that nothing happens outside of his control. And so you would think that from that moment, there's just a short step and then they go into self-examination. They examine their hearts, they examine their actions, and then they would reach the conclusion, well, we've been defeated because we're not living in right relationship with God. But that's not what happens. Verse 3 again. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When you have a chance, take, take five minutes and read through Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible to understand the context of 1 Samuel. Not just 1 Samuel 4, 1 Samuel as a whole. Deuteronomy chapter 28, God is, God's people are about to enter into the promised land. They're about to renew this covenant with God. And God says, if you keep my covenant, there will be blessings. And yet, if you disobey my covenant, if you, if you abandon me, if you do not follow my commandments, there will be curses. All of the things that happened to Israel in this chapter, and not just in this chapter, but everything that happens to Israel culminating with the exile at the end of 2 Kings is, is predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If the people of Israel will abandon God, eventually they will be conquered by their enemies. And if they continue to persist in sin, then they will be sent into exile. Defeat at the hand of their enemies is a sign that they have abandoned God. And you would think that this moment would be this crystallizing moment for the people of Israel, an opportunity for them to say, you know what, we look back on the covenant, we look back on this promise that we have made to God, that God has made with us, and he warned us that if we abandon him, he is going to give us up to our enemies. We've just been defeated by our enemies. Has God allowed this to happen because we have abandoned him? And that's not what happens This moment should lead to widespread repentance among the people of Israel, and yet they reach a completely different conclusion. God has allowed them to be defeated because the Ark of the Covenant is not with them. Now, to be sure, the ark was a very important part of worship for the people of Israel. It was this box, if we can throw that picture up, Will, um, it's this box that was overlaid with gold that was was uh, filled with the tablets that had the Ten Commandments. It symbolizes the covenant that God has made with his people where God says, I will be your God, you will be my people, that I have chosen you out of all of the nations here on earth, that God has made them his people during the time of Exodus. And all of that is symbolized in this ark. In the worship of Israel, it is put in the most holy place because it's said to be the footstool of God's throne. 
The ark is important in Israel's worship because it's a testament to the unbelievably good news, but also the terrifying news, that God, the holy God of all creation, has entered into a relationship with his people. And it symbolizes this relationship with God. It symbolizes that in spite of Israel's sin, God has found a way to dwell among humanity at a distance, but God has found a way to dwell among humanity at long last, just like God's original plan in the garden when he lived with humanity, when all things were good. And that's the significance of the ark. Notice 1 Samuel Chapter 4 refers to the ark as the ark of the covenant. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see it referred to as the ark of the testimony. Elsewhere, we see it referred to as the mercy seat. It's because it's an incredible sign of the grace that God has for sinful people that rather than pouring out judgment upon humanity for their sin, God has a plan to save people from their sin and to bring them into his family. Is that what the people of Israel think when they think of the ark? It's very clear that that's not at all what the people of Israel think. They quickly begin to think of the ark as something different. It no longer represents this astonishing fact that the God of the universe has made a way to dwell among sinful people. No longer does it represent this unbelievable gift that God is entering into relationship with humanity in this new and special way. For the people of Israel, the ark has become their version of an idol. That's really what it is. It's, it's an idol. It represents God, and through this, this idol, they can control God through it. In essence, this nation that God has called to be set apart, holy, a light to the nations, the pagan nations surrounding them, they have become a pagan nation in their understanding of God. I, I find this to be a really telling picture of the spiritual state of Israel in this moment. Rather than doing the hard work of heart examination, looking at their hearts, saying, saying, you know what, maybe God wasn't with us because of our sin, because we have abandoned him. They instead reached the, the conclusion, God wasn't with us because it wasn't with us. The ark wasn't with us. Notice the language of the elders here in verse 3, the, the very pronouns that they use. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that he may come, no, that it may come among us. And save us from the power of our enemies. Notice what the leaders of Israel say is the key to victory in battle here. It's not the Lord. It's the ark. It says, send for the ark and once it, notice the pronoun here, it, not once God is here, but once it, the ark is here, then it will save us from our enemies. In essence, the Israelites are convinced that in order to get God on their side, all they have to do is get the ark to the front lines and their victory is assured. For them, the ark is not representative of this covenant relationship that God has made with them, all the obligations that come with having God dwell among them, but it is, and I know this term is a little bit crass, but this is how they, they see the ark. It's, it's just the God box, 
That's not, it's nothing more than that. It's a box that they can use to control God, to harness his power, to get what they want. They think that they can coerce God to do what they want God to do without any relationship, without any self-examination, no hard work of confession, no hard work of, open, of repentance, no obedience is required. Just get the ark and God will do what we want him to do. Many of you have probably seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the heart, the premise of the movie. Nazi Germany is looking for the ark because if they can find it, to quote one of Indiana Jones's professor friends, an army which carries the ark before it is invincible. And that's what the people of Israel think. This is something that belongs in science fiction. If we can get the ark then God will be forced to work on our behalf. For the people of Israel, the ark is nothing more than a good luck charm. It's a way to control God. Notice the language in verse 4. They, they send for it. They, they bring it back. It's, it's an object. It's, it's their mascot. It's nothing more than that. Once it arrives, they will be invincible. Is that how God works? That if we just do the right things, God is forced to do what we want. Notice this contrast in verse 4. As Verse 4 begins by describing the, the significance of the ark. It emphasizes that this is a holy thing because it represents a holy God. It points us to this relationship of a holy God with a sinful people. And then you get to the end of verse 4 and it says this, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. The ark represents the presence of a holy God among his people. And yet, who brings the ark to the front lines? It's the two sons of Eli. Chapter 2, we read this. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You see just this utter contrast of the way it should be and the way it actually is in Israel. Two of the wickedest men in Israel, they're so wicked that God has actually prophesied multiple times that they will die as a form of judgment upon them for their contempt of God. They're the ones who are carrying, bringing the ark to the front lines. Again, I'm, I'm reminded of the words of Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. These are two men who might know the right words to say, and yet through their actions, through the way they're living their lives, through their motives implied in all of this is that they are fools. They have no concept of, of a God who actually cares about his own glory. God is not a God of the king of the universe, one that deserves utmost allegiance for Hophni and Phinehas. Instead, God is a tool that you bring out when something is broken and you need him, and then you cast him aside when you are through. And I just, I just want us to, before we continue, just, just say we have to be very careful. Very careful of falling into the same error of the people of Israel in this moment. Be very careful of, res of refusing 
to examine your heart. Be very careful to ignore the call to confess and repent. Be very careful of the the hard work, very hard work, yes, but important work of obedience. Be very careful not to come to God on, on His terms because you're only concerned with what you can get out of Him. Honestly, this passage should be a warning to us all that yes, God is long-suffering and yet at the exact same time, He will not be mocked. Paul makes that clear in Galatians chapter 6. Be careful that you're not a fool. Maybe saying the right things. Coming to church and yet functionally in your heart because of the way you live your life, saying there is no God. If we don't heed the warning of this passage, we've already seen what's going to happen. That's what happens in the second battle of Aphek. The the people of Israel, they approach God in this way, and it is is utterly disastrous. Verse 5, As soon as the Ark of the Covenants of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. What happens when the ark finally reaches Ebenezer? Well, the people of Israel, they they respond with joy and excitement. They start throwing a party. Here, in this moment, they think that the ark has come, and so their victory is now assured. In this moment, it it should have led to to a great cry, but it should have been a great cry of anguish, of, of repentance, of falling down on their faces, saying, Who are we that a holy God has now come into our midst? And instead, because they have the God box, they think that they can control God, that God is forced to do exactly what they want. And they throw a victory party. What absolute audacity to think that they can control God. That they can coerce God to do their bidding without a second thought to the notion that he is God and they are not. And the ark enters into their midst and they respond with a party instead of with weeping, which is how they should have responded. The ark of the covenant should lead them to fall on their faces in repentance and yet they party. It's easier to relate to God on our terms than on his terms. And so the people of Israel delude themselves into thinking that they've done exactly what God wants them. They've done something that honors God and that God is going to honor them for it. A generation later, King Saul learns this exact same lesson. Rather than choosing obedience to God, he instead chooses that he is going to go to God on his own terms. And how does God respond? First Samuel chapter 15. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion as is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. God tells Saul that appearances are nothing compared to obedience. 
Surely God would say the exact same thing to the people of Israel in this moment as they bring their ark out into the front lines and throw a party. God's saying, you really think I'm impressed by that? Verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Victory party is so loud that two miles away, they can hear it. The Philistines hear it. They say, what's going on? And then they hear that it's the ark that has arrived, and they tremble in fear because they've heard the rumors of, of the God of Israel. Notice that they say gods. It's because these are just rumors. They don't fully understand the true story. And, and they say, woe is us. How are we going to be able to withstand this God? And yet, rather than this fear leading to them just giving up, as it happens in, in Joshua, And Joshua, as the people are entering into the land, we see in like Joshua chapter 2 that the people of Jericho, they hear of what God has has done for the people of Israel, and they say, we can't stand against this God. And it leads to their victory. The Philistines have the exact opposite response. They they take up courage, and they say, we're going to fight. We're not going to become slaves to the people of Israel. And we begin to say, well, what's the difference between the people of Jericho and the people of, of Philistia? Is it because the people of Felicia are just are better, more, more courageous people? The answer is found in verse 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel died, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Look closely at verse 10. Who defeats Israel in verse 10? The text is very intentional. It it, it is very intentional in in saying it is not the Philistines. The Philistines are not the ones who defeat Israel. The Philistines fought, but Israel was defeated. The implication is very clear. It wasn't Philistia that defeated Israel, but God himself defeated Israel. God's defeat of Israel is complete. The results of the battle are far worse than the first battle of Aphek. Seven and a half times the number of casualties. The rest of the army is so broken that they scatter to their homes. They don't regroup as they did previously Not only that, Hophni and Phinehas die, as we're going to look at next week. This is a sign of judgment from God. Most terrifying of all, the ark, what they saw as the way to control God, is captured. And all this happens because the people of Israel refuse to come to God on his terms, refuse to take God and his commandments seriously, refuse to repent of their sin, refuse to walk in obedience, but instead treat God like something that they can control. And because of their arrogance, 
because of their lack of self-examination, because of their persistent sin. We see a chapter later, maybe two chapters later, the Philistines ruled over the people of Israel for 20 years. All because they chose the easy way of trying to control God rather than the hard way of obedience to him. For Samuel is a book about kings. It, it's about our need for the Lord's chosen king. And we see the, the Lord's chosen king, first it's David and first Samuel, and then ultimately it's, it's Jesus. We need the Lord's chosen king to show us that God is the true king. That he's a sovereign God and, and we owe him our allegiance. And, th- and this passage makes it abundantly clear. There's one thing we take away from this. I, I hope it's this, that God is king. And we cannot control him. We cannot manipulate him into doing our will. That's the message of, of these first 11 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 4. God is king. We cannot control him. We cannot manipulate him to doing what we want him to do. God has no delight in superficial acts of religiosity if they are divorced from a heart of obedience. God will be treated as holy among his people, and if we choose not to treat him as holy, judgment will come. If we're truly paying attention to this passage, we have to ask, what about me? What about me? Am am I trying to manipulate God? Am I trying to control God? Am I trying to get him, coerce him to do what I want him to do? Do I refuse to approach God on his terms? Do I treat God as though he's just like a good luck charm for me? Do I only come to him for what I can get out of him? Do I see God as this tool that I bring to fix my problems, not a God who is worth following, not a God who is holy? See, here here we see the results of Israel's attempts to manipulate God into doing what they want. They refuse to obey him. They refuse to treat him as king. They refuse to follow him. They arrogantly think that they get to dictate how God is going to act. And God, elsewhere in the Old Testament, talking about Israel and the people of Philistia, says this, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. I think there's good reason to think that that these words here in in Judges chapter 13 are actually referring to the exact same thing as 1 Samuel chapter 4. God is saying that if we try to control him, If we don't treat him as the king, if you try to manipulate him or use him rather than following him, God sees that as evil in his sight. And we might not be as brazen as the the people of Israel in bringing out this ark and they treat it as a good luck charm, but how often do we have the same heart position? How often do we ignore the hard work of obedience because of what it's going to cost us? How often do we ignore the commandments of God because we want to just settle for looking religious so that God will owe us? How often do we go to church? 
not as an act of worship, but just as a part of transaction with God. God, I was, I was there. I'm doing my part now. You better do your part as well. This is, this is forever the, the temptation of those who would follow God, the temptation to substitute external acts that will make us look holy, trying to put God into our debt for the hard work of doing what God actually asks of us. The temptation to treat God as though he exists for my every whim. And so not only do we go to church as a way to get something out of God, but we fast as a way to manipulate God, saying, hey, I'm really serious about this prayer, so, so you need to answer it. Like the Israelites, we're all guilty of attempting to harness God's power to accomplish our own ends. Politicians suddenly become serious about their faith when they realize how many people will vote for them? Students will pray for a test before a test they didn't study for, so that way they get a good grade. We read our Bibles not as a part of having a relationship with God, but as a way to get Him to bless us. We pray not the priorities of Scripture, but only ever what we want. And through it all, just like the Israelites with the ark, we treat God not as a God who desires a relationship with sons and daughters, but instead as a good luck charm to be brought out whenever we need something to go our way. And this text makes it very clear. God refuses to operate on those terms. It's actually one of the reasons why he allows the ark to be captured. It's not because the Philistines are stronger than him. That's, that's very clear if you've read ahead and you look at chapter 5. It's because Israel has abandoned him. See, here's the the reality. When we attempt to manipulate God or, or control God to make him do what we want, we're saying that God is not the true king. I am. That God doesn't have the final say. I do. And we replace the true king of the universe with a fraud, with myself. And I look at my own life, and this is a terrifying thought. Because I see all of the ways that I can fall into this same pattern of life as the Israelites. I want to approach God on my terms, not on his. I want to take the easy path of, of appearing religious rather than the hard path of obedience, of confession, of repentance, and the reality is that's true of every single person who has ever lived, except for one. Only one has never attempted to manipulate God to get what he wants. Only one has never attempted to control God to accomplish his own purposes for his life. Only one ever chose the hard path of obedience his entire life. Only one who has lived a life fully summed up by the words in the garden, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. No wonder we're looking for the true king. The true king who will show us 
that God the King is not someone or something we can control, that we can manipulate, that we can coerce into doing what we want, but a king worthy of our entire lives. That's the message of 1 Samuel 4. It's a message that ultimately points us to Jesus. It's a message that points us to the hard but but beautiful path of obedience, of self-examination, of repentance. It's a message that rejects the way, the path of the fool to embrace the life of a son and daughter of the king of the cosmos. It's a message that says, Father, you and your glory are worth more than what I want out of this world. Is that true? Let's pray. Father, in the midst of this text, I, I just want to ask for forgiveness. I so often subconsciously live life as a fool. Not seeing you as the true king of the universe, worthy of my utmost allegiance. but as a God who is there for my own needs, my own ends, that I can control to get what I want out of life. And I imagine that's not just true of me, that's true of everyone here this morning. Thank you for the mercy of the gospel. A message of grace also a message of conviction. To follow a king who says, anyone who would come after me must pick up his cross and die to himself and follow me. Help us to do that, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.